And then we come and transition in chapter 2 to move from uh, Hosea's family to what this symbolic act means and what the image signifies. And it signifies Yahweh and Israel. And we see that as the father pleads with the children concerning their mother. And so we see the plea proper in verses, uh, verse two uh, of in verse two. And so we see the exhortation to the children. Now, who are the children who are the mother? I think perhaps children here probably refer to individuals who are part of the whole, probably the remnant, probably the faithful, probably true believers under the old covenant. And the mother refers to Israel as a nation, the individuals who are part of that nation, the individuals who recognize what is going on. God is calling them to plead, plead with their mother concerning her wicked and adulterous Ways. That is probably what is going on. Because even though the remnant are faithful, even though the remnant have believed, even though the remnant shall have blessings forevermore according to the promises of the new covenant, they are still part of the old covenant. And the sins of the whole nation shall be poured out upon the whole nation, including the remnant. But we'll get to that more when we get to verse 2. And it really is a sad image. And if you perhaps notice, notice it's third person, or it's really second person, but there's an intermediary. That is, the father is asking the children to plead with the mother. That is, the husband and the wife are not on speaking terms. Yahweh has been very long-suffering for a long time, and now it requires the children to plead with their mother. And can I just say as well... In our modern times, or in any time really, it's a devastating picture when children have to be the parent. It's a devastating picture when children have to be the mature one in the relationship. That's not how it's supposed to be, dear brethren. Children who are young, and it happens a lot, are not supposed to take care of their parents. Parents are supposed to take care of their children. And so now here we have this wicked and adulterous mother, who it's no secret what she's doing. It's no secret the kind of thing she's engaging in. The children know it, and the children have to go then deal with it. So Yahweh is saying, plead probably plead, implore is probably the language. The New King James says, bring charges against your mother, bring charges or plead with her. And notice the reason, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. They have not functioned as husband and wife for a long time. Again, Yahweh has been very patient. Now he comes to warn his wife by way of the children. And so he exhorts them and then notice the exhortation they're supposed to bring to her mother at the end of verse 2. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Unashamed adultery, immorality, and unashamed adultery. So we move from the general harlotries, any sort of sexual immorality, anything that is wicked, anything that falls under the seventh commandment, to the actual sin of violating that marriage bed, to move from the general to the specific. Put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. And in a lot of ways, dear brethren, as harsh as that language is, it is a kindness of Yahweh. Notice he's telling her, put it away. Stop. Don't do it. Put away these things. 
There is going to come a time where Yahweh is no longer going to be patient with sin. And we see that in Israel's history. However, at this point, he's saying, turn. At this point, he's saying, put away those things. At this point, he's saying to that adulterous wife, come back. Come back to me. Put away those things. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. And perhaps the language does seem to indicate that she's unashamed of what she is doing. Everybody knows what she's doing. Everybody knows what she's engaged in. It's a sad sign, in a, a, a clear sign of a degenerated society when sexual acts are no longer private. When people just do it in public, when people just recognize what's going on, people don't care what people might think. That is a huge and major problem, and that's what we see with this one. She doesn't care. Everybody knows what she is doing. So there's a warning, but there is also the result of her continued infidelity in verse 3. Lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. She's going to be exposed and exiled. She's going to be stripped and going to be starved. Notice how Yahweh describes judgment. It's usually giving one over to their sin, but giving one over to their sin further than what they want. She is willing to expose herself, but Yahweh is going to strip her and make her helpless in her sin and in her wickedness strip her as if she was a helpless babe as in the day she was born but he's also going to starve her as well to make her like a wilderness set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst perhaps this does allude back to israel's birth that is, when they were called up out of the land of Egypt, after they didn't trust in the Lord to enter into the land and take it, only Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can do it. Yahweh said we can do it. The other ten said there are giants in the land. We don't want to go take them. And so what did Israel do? They wandered in the wilderness. They wandered for years without a home. So perhaps there's illusion Back to that, the wilderness wandering. And we know from Israel's history, she does not come back to Yahweh. Yahweh does eventually send her into captivity into Assyria in 722 BC. And so this is what they must plead. This is what they must speak. This is what they must say to their mother. But then notice the shame she brings in verses 4 and 5. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. We've already seen the language of no mercy. We saw how one child's name is Lo Ruhama, that is no mercy. God who once showed mercy is no longer going to have mercy upon Israel. Then we saw the good part that God will show mercy uh, in the new covenant era, in the new covenant age, when the Messiah comes, he shall show mercy to a wicked people. And God thankfully does that in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the line of David, through the line of Judah, comes the king who brings salvation for his people and mercy for a wretched people. But here we see, I will not have mercy on her children. Again, this goes back to the idea that God is going to punish Israel as a nation. Yes, 
Every individual before the final judgment seat of God is going to be liable for their own sins. Not for the sins of the parents, not for the sins of the children, but for their own sins. However, in Israel, because God entered into a a covenant with them as a nation, the remnant is still going to face the consequences. The remnant is still going to be carried off into captivity because of the wickedness of Israel. They're still going to bear the brunt of that. I will have no mercy upon her children. That is probably what is in view here. I know that's hard. There's a lot of difficult things in this text, but that is probably what is in view. Now, thankfully, the remnant have many promises. When they go into captivity, there is going to be the stump king who comes. When they go into captivity, there's going to be the promise of Emmanuel. When they go into captivity, there is the promise that Yahweh one day will show mercy. There is the promise that one day great will be the day of Jezreel, and one day they shall be my people. And so they, all, of the, all of the nation is going to be punished and the remnant is going to go with them. The mother is bringing shame upon her whole family. Israel as a whole is bringing a shame upon even individuals who we would say are faithful, rem, the faithful remnant and faithful believers. And notice that shameful behavior. She continues to go after my, uh, her lovers. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. Notice multiple. It's not just one. We know that Israel in their history, they go after many gods and many bales. And the reason they go after many gods and many bales is because of what the gods supposedly give them. We see that. Who gives me my bread and my water? Sustenance. Who gives me my wool and my linen? My clothing on my back. Who gives me my oil and my drink? Who gives me luxury? Who gives me refreshment? Who gives me perfume? Who gives me nice things? You see, most of the time, dear brethren, in this fallen world, people worship other gods for mercenary type reasons. They worship other gods for what those gods might give to them. And it's unfortunate the same thing is true in Israel. The reason they go after Baal, who is the god of fertility, the god of agriculture, is because if they do what the other nations are doing, well, maybe Baal will give us something. And the sad reality is they didn't just worship Baal, but they thought they were worshiping Yahweh. They wanted to have have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to worship Yahweh, worship Baal, worship Molech, worship the Ashtoreth, so that they might, if they get one right, they're going to receive good things. They're going to receive blessings, uh, temporal blessings in the, in the present evil age or the present world in which they live. I'll go after him because he gives me things. I'll go after them because they provide for me things. I'll go after them because of luxurious things. Now, I'm going to make a comment here. And brethren, sometimes when I get towards the end of my rope, I'm just going to be candid and just confess something. When I need a break, I get grumpy. Okay. When I need a break, I can be mean in the pulpit. So I'm going to try not to do that. Hopefully I haven't been super mean lately, but the text and the demeanor of the text does call for a little bit of oomph to it, doesn't it? Especially when we talk about idolatry. But there is the problem of modern church mercenary consumerism. We treat the church like a spiritual super mall 
rather than the house of the Lord God most high. And it's very easy to do that, isn't it? I mean, we have cars now. We can drive. We can go to other parts that are far away. And it's not wrong to look for a good church. I'm not denying that. It's not wrong to think and ponder or consider what a good church looks like and find that. And when you find that, go and be faithful at that church. But sometimes we want to go shopping. Sometimes we want to think, well, this church isn't perfect. Maybe there's something else another church could provide. Brethren, we can be uh, uh, prone to that very thing. There is no true church, or uh, there is a true church. There's no perfect church on this side of heaven, is there? There is no perfect church in this present evil age. If you're looking for a perfect church, you are not going to find it. I have my convictions, I have my beliefs, and what I think worship looks like and church looks like. And when I found that church, I drove. I drove an hour to make sure I got there. I drove an hour to make sure I was there. Certainly, there are difficult logistics, but the point is, is that we have to be careful. And the reality is, too, I believe there are other true churches who are not just like us. I want to make that very, very clear. Obviously not perfect, but not a true church. However, a lot of modern churches cater to this consumerism, don't they? They cater, what does the customer want? That is the wrong question to ask. The question we ask is, what does God want? How does God wish to be worshipped? We're entering into his house, and it says in Hebrews chapter 12, we must worship him acceptably because he is a consuming fire. Not with puppets, not with ponies, not with programs, but with the word of God. And rather than ask what the church can do for you, ask what is central to this church How is that manifest in worship? And then ask, what can I do to serve my brethren in that church? How can I serve the church according to what God has said? The first thing is show up. I mean, that's the first thing. Show up, do not forsake the assembling. And then as we see, you know, progress in the basics, then we can move on uh, to where your giftings may lie in other things. But it's important to understand that we have to be careful of these very things. The church doesn't have everything I want. Whine, whine, complain, grumble. We can start to think of other things. We ought not to do that, dear brethren. If we found a good church, be faithful of that church. Be faithful for the long haul rather than thinking about uh, other lovers. And so there is, uh, that is something we need to be aware of. And I think overall, the application we can take away from verses 2 through 5 uh, is the place of rebuke and how we deal with that very idea in our modern times. The Bible does speak in the New Testament that if someone is in sin, we should call them out. And I think Jeremiah Burroughs commenting on Hosea does provide some helpful insight. Now, there is the tension because there is that ninth commandment, don't lie. That falling under that is don't be a gossip, don't meddle, or as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, mind your own business. Uh, So there is that tension, isn't there? Someone's in sin. Should we call them out? But we don't want to meddle. So uh, what does that all look like? I think Burroughs is helpful here. He says we should be respectful, peaceable, and do so with perhaps the aid of the elders. He's going on to talk about how we need to be long-suffering with our brethren too, right? Wasn't our Lord very long-suffering? He didn't look at the little sin and went, boom, 
gotcha. I mean, he is very patient until things became notorious. Hibero says we must not stand pleading for every infirmity. Otherwise, you're going to have no time for your job during the week. Uh, For every infirmity with our brother, but rather pass by many and cover them. I mean, love covers a multitude of sins, much less with the church. If there be that which is notorious so that I cannot have communion with them, and I shall be wrapped up in the guilt except I testify the truth, certainly then I am bound to plead. But notice, patience long-suffering. Maybe they're going through it. Maybe they're going through a trial. We all struggle with remaining sins. We all struggle with uh, the, the, the battles against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so there is an element of patience that is needed. In fact, in Galatians chapter 6, when Paul does speak about uh, rebuke or perhaps a gentle exhortation, a gentle reminder, He says, brethren, if a man is overtaken, again, there seems to be a a qualification overtaken in a trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Patience and graciousness. But when we first started going to free grace, Pastor Butler was very gracious and patient with me. We used to think pictures of Jesus were okay. And we had a picture of Jesus on our fridge. Pastor Butler came over to do the membership interview. He didn't say anything. (laughs) And eventually when he spoke on it and taught on it, I realized, wow, I I am engaging in idolatry with a picture of Jesus. So we got rid of that very thing. You know what else we did? We went to Pastor, when he was Pastor Porter, went to his house and after the morning service. And then you know what we did after that? We went mini golfing. We didn't go back to the evening service. You see, I had much to learn, and yet they were very gracious and patient with me. The point is, dear brethren, we need to be gracious and patient with people. People get angry, people struggle, and brethren, you want people to be gracious with you, right? I mean, we're always hard on other people and very gracious to ourselves. Brother, I'm not saying we don't call out sin. I'm not saying there isn't a place for rebuke, but we need wisdom, and how to execute that. We need wisdom in when to do that. So we're not meddling, but also restoring someone who might have fallen into and been overtaken by a temptation. And so it is, there is a place for it. Uh, but thankfully, too, as well, as it comes up in the preaching, I mean, the Bible says in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, uh, that the, the, the word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, which I think refers to the officers, pastors, are equipped and thoroughly complete. Sometimes yeah, that's why it's good to come and gather because I'm not just going to preach on my hobby horses. I'm not, we're going to deal with what comes through the text so that if there's something hard you need to hear, God is pretty gracious providentially uh, to have you hear it on the Lord's day. And rebuke is important. Idolatry is heinous. So watch out. I can say that. Brethren, our hearts are like idol factories. We often have many things that we love in place of God most high. We still struggle with that. God is gracious. God is good. And if you struggle with idolatry, which we all do, confess it to God and find mercy. But we must deal with it. We must kill that. Uh, That is the key sin. That is the main sin. Worshiping anything other than God as God, whether that's self, whether that's phones, whether that's work, whether that's children. I love my children, 
it's easy to worship my children, but anything can be an idol. Any good thing can be an idol, and we have to watch out for that very thing. If you've sinned, confess it to God, find mercy. But there is a place for rebuke. There is a time to plead and a time to implore. So that is the plead for the un- or the pleading for the plea for the unfaithful mother or the adulterous mother. Let's look secondly at the punishment for an adulterous mother in verses 6 through 13. No more lovers, no more love, and no more life. Those are the three things I think that we see here. And notice no more lovers in verses 6 through 8. Now, some view this perhaps as a positive, and in a lot of ways it could be. But again, we see the mercenary spirit of the wife. And so Yahweh says, therefore, behold, in verse 6, I will hedge up your way with thorns and I will wall her in. She not, cannot find her paths. And so he's going to uh, restrain. He's going to uh, take away. But yet she still will chase her lovers, verse 7, but not overtake them. She will seek them, but not find them. She's going to try and chase her lovers anyway. That's how much she loves nice things. That's how much she loves idolatry. She's willing to pursue even when she is constricted. It's very similar to what you see with Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, when the the, the men are struck with blindness, they're still reaching for that door. That's how heinous sin is, isn't it? When one is in sin, they just keep reaching for sin. And that's what we see with these lovers. And so she says, so she's hedged up. She chases after them. She can't find them. Well, then, well, I'll just go back to the guy who'll take me anyway. Then she will say... Verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than for now. It was better then than I am now with no lovers. At least there's someone there. Brethren, that's the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal son is like, you know what? My, my, My father's servants get, you know, nicer things than I do. I'm sitting with these pigs. I'll just go back and be a servant. He doesn't want to be with the pigs. That shows God's mercy and kindness even to save mercenaries who want things rather than God himself. Yet God is still gracious and good to give good things. And we should love the God who gives those things, but we should not just want him for the things that he gives. And so they're still thinking this way. I'll go back to my first husband. It was better for me than now. But notice verse 8. For she did not know that I gave her grain new wine and oil. The main sources of her prosperity, the main sources of Israel's prosperity, God is the one who provided it. And I multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. They used it for worshiping other gods rather than the God who gave them these good things. Isn't that egregious? That's exactly how wicked sin is, isn't it? God gives good things, yet we worship other gods. I mean, that's exactly what is said in Acts 14 and 17. God has given fruitful seasons. He's given abundance, yet man worships other things. We see that God has provided so many temporal blessings in this world, and yet man worships other things. It shows how wicked sin is. Now, this illustration doesn't do it justice, It's like your parents giving you clothes on Christmas and you go, I don't want that. I mean, that's how wicked and terrible it is. We all think that's wicked and terrible. We all think that's awful because the parent worked so hard for those clothes. And yet the kid just says, I don't want that. 
or a kid griping at other gifts that one gives them, rather being thankful for those things. And so these, this wife has forgotten where she received her blessings. And again, it's, we see more clearly which they prepared for Baal, which is very clear in the text about what they were doing, worshiping other gods. So there's going to be no more lovers. But then in verses 9 through 11, there's going to be no more love. Verse 10, he's going to uncover her nakedness. We saw this already a little bit in verse 3. He's going to expose her. I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. Even her lovers don't want to come near to her because he'll show how wicked she is. Even pagans, dear brethren, because of the law written on the heart, know that there are some things that someone just shouldn't do, right? And the lovers here know that there's something wrong with this lady. I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. They're not going to come help her. They're not going to be near to her. They're going to kind of go. They used her just as much as she used them. So God is going to uncover that. God is going to remove them. The Baals can't do anything about it, can they? I mean, Baal is just an idol. Baal is just made with men's hands. Baal has eyes but does not see and ears that do not hear. They cannot do anything. And if you're an unbeliever here today, money can't save you. Your phones, that is like the key idol that is huge today, cannot save you. Your own righteousness cannot save you. A false view of the world cannot save you. And you have no excuse before God most high. Where will they be when God's judgment comes? I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. But also notice he's going to take away her goodness, take away her mirth. Therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. The things that she wants from others, the things that she didn't realize came from Yahweh, her husband, she is going to take and remove and take them away from her. Reversal of the good things he's given. But also in verse 11, he'll remove the celebrations. I will also cause her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. Now, the feasts in Deuteronomy 16 and Exodus 34 and the new moon mentioned in 1 Samuel 20 and the weekly Sabbath mentioned in Exodus 23, they were all good things. But they were all good things meant to be worshipped where under the old covenant? Jerusalem. This is the northern kingdom. They don't have Jerusalem. And so any sort of worship that they engage in is a violation of the old covenant because it's not at the proper place. But yet, they still used them. Yet, they still tried to celebrate them. But they did so in an ungodly way. They did so in an unacceptable way. See, that's why we worship God acceptably, according to Hebrews chapter 12, what Yahweh says. They might think, hey, we're celebrating this feast and that feast and doing this. It doesn't matter. They weren't doing it the way that Yahweh said. But it also probably shows their syncretism, their blending of religions as well. We'll do a little bit of pagan, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of Yahweh. We'll take whatever we can get as long as we have nice things. As long as we have good things, then we, will, then we will do what you wish. But even then, they only do it their way rather than God's way. And so God is going to remove 
her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And then in verses 12 through 13, 12 and 13, she's going to have no more life. Notice the desolation of the unfaithful wife in verse 12. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. Still persistent in forgetting where all her blessings came from. She's saying it came from Baal, not Yahweh. It came from Molech, not Yahweh. It came from somewhere else, but not Yahweh. And so he's going to destroy her lovers. He's going to destroy the gifts of her lovers. He's going to destroy her. So I'll make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And then he comes to punish her. Verse 13, we see the ultimate reason. For the days of the bales to which she burned incense, she decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord. What we see here is the outworking of the curses from Deuteronomy 28. The outworking of the curses from Leviticus chapter 26. Yahweh warned them. Yahweh, very in much detail, warned them what would happen many times. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. Don't forget me. I am the one who's provided for you. I am the one who has given to you. Don't forget me. What happened? They grew fat and forgot the Lord God most high and went and worshiped other Baals. That's what mirth can do, dear brethren. That's what riches can do. Riches are not necessarily a bad thing. You're not a sinner if you have riches. The love of money is the root of all evil. That's why it's a grace of God if you can be godly while being rich. Just like it's a grace of God if you can be godly with nothing. To know how to abound and to be abased. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But for Israel's time, for where they were at... They forgot the Lord God most high at a time of great prosperity. They worshiped Baal. They adorned themselves for her rather than for Yahweh. They dressed nice for her rather or for the lovers rather than for Yahweh. Uh, they dressed in a nice way. They, they prioritized Baal and Molech rather than Yahweh. She made herself nice and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot says the Lord. Now, what these verses teach us is how judgment for idolatry looks. Now, remember the time period. It's under Jeroboam II, prosperity. Things are going well economically. Things are, uh, there's luxury at this time. And so for them, Judgment probably would have seemed far-fetched. What are you talking about? Things are going pretty well right now. Hosea, why do you have to be such a weirdo with the wife you married and all the weird names that you named your children? Like, why do you have to do that sort of thing? Why do you have to talk about doom and gloom? Brethren, it's really not unlike today, is it? I mean, we live in a time of mirth, a time of much, a time of plenty. I understand. I said this last time, runaway inflation, but relatively, we're in a time of much prosperity. And what has man done? Forgot God. Talk to someone on the street. Talk to a young person. Hey, have you thought about what's going to happen when you're going to die? I don't really want to think about that till I'm 80. I don't want to think about that till I'm older. I don't have to think about that. I can have fun now. That's 
not the way to think, but it is indicative of what we see here. People view it as far-fetched, but yet the picture of what we see here is very, very vivid, isn't it? How terrifying judgment looks. God gives good things, but he's going to take away all those good things. God gives temporal blessings in this world, but one day this world is going to burn. Second Peter chapter 3. And the reality is, if you're not a believer in Christ, God has given you good things, whether you realize it or not. God has given you blessings, temporal blessings. And as he has shown and the creation demonstrates his wisdom and divine power, you have no excuse before the Lord God most high. And it's going to be your ingratitude and your idolatry that shall be your downfall. McKay says the gravity of sin does not principally arise because it leads to punishment. The heinousness of sin springs from the insult it delivers to God and the sheer ingratitude that it displays to his goodness. That is how wicked your sin is. God is good, giving you good things, and yet you worship something other than him. But thankfully, this text in some ways is meant to be a comfort because of what we saw in verse 2. God is long-suffering. God warns. God has saying, judgment is coming. And while you still have breath, flee that judgment that is coming. And the only way to flee that judgment that is coming is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, believe on Christ, and you shall find forgiveness if you believe on Christ. All of your idolatrous, adulterous sins will be forgiven. But if you do not believe before Christ comes back, and if you do not believe before you die, what will happen will be judgment. And you can't say, I didn't warn you. You can't say that he didn't warn you either. Well, let's pray. Well, Lord, our God, we're thankful for what you teach us about sin and how heinous and wicked it is. Uh, thank you so much. You teach us about the terrifying reality, but also holy reality of your righteous judgment that is coming. We know that you're a holy God who hates sin and must punish sin. And we know that we who've been created and been given good things sinned against you in such an egregious way. And yet it, we thank you so much for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into this world, who was like us in any way, every way, yet without sin. Thank you that he was that perfect sacrifice for us, taking away our sin and turning away your wrath, that in him we have life everlasting. In him, your church is called the bride of Christ. Thank you for this reality. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for this hope. Uh, that we do have as your people, as your church, as the bride of Christ, that Christ came from heaven to seek her, to die for her, to love her, of which we are a part of. We know that we are not deserving of your love. We are not deserving of your mercy and grace, yet we thank you for it, that you do give it. We do thank you for your warnings. We do thank you for the bad news. We do thank you that you teach us what that bad news is, and you warn us with that bad news. And yet we are also thankful for that good news that Christ came into this world. And so we ask and pray that you'd give us all wisdom. And we all struggle still, uh, still with much sin. 
We ask that you give us wisdom as we encourage our brethren, as we encourage those who perhaps have fallen into sin. Help us to be patient, help us to be long-suffering, help us to be humble, and help us to know when to speak. Help us to know if it's meddling, help us to know if it's gossip, and then help us to know and to do what is right according to what your word says. So give us that wisdom that we need. We also pray that you would be pleased to save sinners, that you would work in them a mighty work today and hopefully in the future. For you're a God who tarries for the salvation of your elect. You tarry for the salvation of your people. And thank you that you do tarry, that it does bring a great multitude into your fold. And so we pray that as we walk this world, as we go out of this place into the world, we pray that you protect us and keep us. We pray that you'd help us to be uh, uh, diligent in our Christian walk. Help us to be diligent in our jobs. Help us to be zealous for good works. Help us to have knowledge uh, of those good works. We know that wisdom is required. We know that truth is needed. And we pray that you'd help us to walk in these ways. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray. May you be glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.